Chapter 20 of The Countess of Rudolstadt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Countess of Rudolstadt by George Sand. Translated by Francis G. Shaw. Chapter 20. When Consuela recovered her consciousness, she experienced an ineffable serenity, without realizing either the place in which she was or the events which had brought her there. She was lying in the open air, and without feeling in any manner the cold of the night, she freely saw the stars glittering in the vast and pure sky. To this enchanting glance soon succeeded the sensation of emotion, quite rapid, but easy and agreeable. The sound of an oar dipping into the water at short intervals gave her to understand that she was in a boat and was crossing the lake. A gentle heat penetrated her limbs, and there was in the placidity of the sleeping waters in which the breeze agitated numerous aquatic plants something sweet which recalled to her the lagoons of Venice in the beautiful nights of spring. Consuela raised her languid head, looked about her, and saw two rows using all their strength, one at each extremity of the bark. She sought with her eyes for the citadel, and saw it already quite far off, dark as a mountain of stone in the transparent frame of air and water. She said to herself that she was saved, but immediately remembering her friends, she uttered the name of Carl with anxiety. I am here, not a word, Signora. The most profound silence, replied Carl, who was rowing in front of her. Consuelo thought that the other rower must be Gottlieb, and too weak to torment herself any longer, she allowed herself to fall back into her first attitude. A hand drew again about her, the soft warm cloak in which she had been enveloped. But she gently pushed it from her face, in order to contemplate the starry azure which was displayed without limit above her head. In proportion as she recovered her strength and the elasticity of her motions, paralyzed by a violent nervous crisis, she collected her thoughts, and the image of Mayer presented itself, horrible and bloody, before her eyes. She made an effort to rise again, on perceiving that her head rested upon the bosom and that her body was supported by the arm of a third passenger, whom she had not yet seen, or rather, whom she had taken for a bundle. So completely was he wrapped up, hidden and motionless, extended behind her in the bottom of the bark. A profound terror seized upon Consuelo when she remembered the imprudent confidence which Carl had testified in Mayer and when she supposed it possible that this wretch was present near her. The care he seemed to take to hide himself increased the suspicions of the fugitive. She was filled with confusion at having reposed against the bosom of that man, and almost reproached Providence for having permitted her to enjoy, under his protection, some moments of a salutary forgetfulness and an inexpressible comfort. Happily, the bark touched the shore at this moment, and Consuelo hastened to rise, in order to take Carl's hand and leap upon the bank. 
but the shock of landing made her stagger and fall back into the arms of that mysterious personage. She then saw him erect, and, by the feeble light of the stars, could perceive that he wore a mask upon his face. But he was a whole head taller than Mayer, and, though enveloped in a long cloak, his person had the elegance of a light and graceful figure. These circumstances completely reassured our fugitive. She accepted the arm which he offered to her in silence, advanced fifty steps with him upon the strand, followed by Carl and the other individual, who had renewed to her by signs the injunction not to utter a single word. The country was silent and desert. No farther movement was to be perceived in the citadel. Behind a thicket they found a carriage with four horses, into which the unknown entered with Consuelo. Carl took his seat upon the box. The third individual disappeared without Consuelo's noticing this circumstance. She yielded to the silent and solemn haste of her liberators, and soon the coach, which was excellent and remarkably easy, rolled in the night with the rapidity of lightning. The noise of wheels and the galloping of horses are never favorable to conversation. Consuelo felt quite intimidated and even a little frightened at her tete-a-tete with the unknown. Still, when she saw that there was no further necessity for silence, she thought she ought to express to him her gratitude and her joy. But she obtained no answer. He had placed himself opposite to her in token of respect. He took her hand and clasped it in his, without saying a single word. Then he again drew back into the corner of the carriage, and Consuelo, who had hoped to open the conversation, did not dare insist after this tacit refusal. She earnestly desired to know to what generous and devoted friend she was indebted for her safety. But she experienced for him, without knowing him, an instinctive feeling of respect mingled with fear, and her imagination endowed this strange traveling companion with all the romantic qualities which agreed with the circumstances. At last the thought came to her that he was a subaltern agent of the invisibles, perhaps a faithful servant who feared to fail in the duties of this situation by permitting himself to speak with her at night in a tete-a-tete. After two hours of rapid traveling, they stopped in the middle of a very dark wood. The relay they should have found here had not arrived. The unknown withdrew a little to see if it approached, or to conceal his impatience and anxiety. Consuelo alighted also, and walked upon the sand of a neighboring path with Carl, of whom she had a thousand questions to ask. "'Thank God, Signora, here you are alive,' said this faithful squire. And yourself, dear Carl, I could not be better since you are saved. And Gottlieb, how is he? I presume that he is well in his bed at Spandau. Just heaven, has Gottlieb remained? Then he will pay for us. He will neither pay for himself nor for anyone else. When the alarm was given, I know not by whom. I ran to rejoin you at all hazards seeing that it was the moment to risk all for all. I met the adjutant Nantui, that is, the recruiter mayor, who was very pale. You met him, Carl? He was erect, was walking? 
Why not? Then he was not wounded. Ah, yes, he told me that he had wounded himself slightly by falling in the dark upon a bundle of arms. But I did not pay much attention and asked him quickly where you were. He knew nothing. He had lost his wits. I even thought I saw that he intended to betray us, for the alarm bell which I had heard and the tone of which I had clearly recognized is that which comes from his alcove and which rings for his quarter. But he appeared to have thought better of it, for he knew well, the villain, that there was a great deal of money to be earned by liberating you. He therefore assisted me to turn aside the storm by saying to all those whom we met that it was Gottlieb's sonambulism, which had again occasioned a false alarm. In fact, as if Gottlieb had wished to prove him right, we found him asleep in a corner with that singular slumber into which he often falls in broad daylight, wherever he may be, even upon the parapet of the esplanade. You would have said that the agitation of his flight made him sleep standing, which is, by my faith, very wonderful, unless, indeed, he drank by mistake some drops of the prepared wine which I poured out without stint to his dear parents. What I do know is that they shut him up in the nearest chamber to prevent his going to walk upon the glacis, and that I thought it best to leave him there until fresh orders. He cannot be accused of anything, and my flight will sufficiently explain yours. The Schwartzes slept too soundly on their side to hear the bell, and no one will have gone to see if your chamber was open or shut. Therefore the alarm will not be serious until tomorrow. Monsieur Nantiel assisted me to dissipate it, and I began my search for you while pretending to return to my bunk. I had the happiness to find you three steps from the door through which we were to pass in order to escape. The turnkeys in that quarter were all gained over. At first I was quite frightened to find you almost dead, but dead or alive, I did not wish to leave you there. I carried you without obstacle to the boat that was waiting for us in the moat. And then there happened to me quite a disagreeable little adventure, which I will relate to you another time, Signora. You have had emotions enough of the kind today, and what I should say might cause you a little shock. No, no, Carl, I wish to know everything. I am strong enough to hear everything. Oh, I know you, Signora. You will blame me. You have your way of seeing things. I remember, Rosewald, where you prevented me. Carl, your refusal to speak would torment me cruelly. Speak, I beseech you. I wish it. Well, Signora, it is but a small misfortune after all, and if there is any sin that concerns me alone. I was passing with you in the boat under a low arcade, very slowly, in order not to make too much noise with my oars in that echoing place. When, upon the end of a little pier which juts out and half bars the arcade, I was stopped by three men, who seized me by the collar as they jumped into the boat. I must inform you that the person who journeys with you in the carriage, and who was already our friend, added Carl, lowering his voice, had had the imprudence to give two-thirds of the sum agreed on to Nantul. As we passed the last postern, Nantul, 
thinking that he might well be content with that and could recover the remainder by betraying us, had posted himself there with two rascals of his own stamp to recapture you. He hoped in the first place to get rid of your protector and of me, in order that no one could mention the money he had received. That is doubtless why these villains undertook to assassinate us. But your traveling companion, Signora, all peaceful as he seems, is a lion in fight. I swear to you I shall remember it a long while. In two turns of his arm, he freed himself from the first scoundrel by throwing him into the water. The second, intimidated, leaped again upon the pier and kept aloof to see the end of my struggle with the adjutant. Faith, Signora, I did not acquit myself so gracefully as his brilliant lordship, whose name I do not know. It lasted quite half a minute, which does me no honor. For that man to wheel, who is usually as strong as a bull, appeared slack and weak, as if he were afraid, or as if the wound of which he had spoken made him anxious. At last, feeling him let go his hold, I lifted him and dipped his feet a little in the water. His lordship then said to me, Do not kill him. It is useless. But I, who had recognized him perfectly, and who know how he swims, how tenacious, cruel, and capable of everything he is, I, who had before felt the strength of his fists, and who had some old accounts to settle with him, I could not help giving him a blow with my clenched hand upon his head a blow that will prevent his ever receiving or applying any more, Signora. May God grant peace to his soul and mercy to mine. He sank straight down into the water, like a beam, made a great circle, and did not appear again any more than if he had been marble. The companion, whom his lordship had sent out of our boat by the same road, had made a dive and was already at the side of the pier where his comrade, the most prudent of the three, was helping him to try and recover a footing. That was not easy. The levee is so narrow in that place that one pulled over the other, and both fell into the water. While they were struggling, swearing at each other, and enjoying a little swimming amusement, I rowed with all my strength and soon reached a spot where a second rower, an honest fisherman by trade had given me his word that he would come and help me with two or three strokes of his oar to cross the lake. It was lucky, moreover, Signora, that I had practiced as a sailor upon the smooth waters of the park at Rosewald. I did not know, the day on which I took part under your eyes, in a beautiful rehearsal, that I should have an opportunity to engage for you in a naval combat." somewhat less magnificent, but rather more serious. That crossed my memory when I found myself on the broad water, and I was seized with a crazy laugh, but a crazy laugh that was very disagreeable. I did not make the least noise, at least I did not hear myself. But my teeth chattered in my mouth. I had, as it were, a hand of iron on my throat, and the sweat rolled off my forehead cold as ice. I see well that one cannot kill a man as quietly as if he were a fly. Still, he was not the first since I have been in battle, but that was in battle. Instead of which, like that in a corner, in the night, behind a wall, without saying a word, it resembles a premeditated murder. 
And yet, it was a case of allowable self-defense. And then it would not have been the first assassination I had premeditated. You remember, Signora? But for you, I should have done it. Though I don't know, but I should have repented it afterwards. What is sure is that I laughed an ugly laugh on the lake, and even now I can hardly help it. He looked so funny, sinking right down, straight into the moat, like a reed that you push into the mud. And when I saw nothing more than his head ready to disappear, his head flattened by my fist. Mercy on me, how ugly he was. He frightened me. I see him still. Consuelo, fearing the effect of this terrible emotion upon poor Carl, endeavored to overcome her own in order to calm him and withdraw his attention. Carl was born gentle and patient, like a true bohemian serf. He was not made for this tragic life into which fate had thrown him, and while accomplishing acts of energy and of vengeance, he experienced the horror of remorse and the terrors of devotion. Consuela turned him from his gloomy thoughts, perhaps for the purpose also of giving relief to her own. She also had that night armed herself for murder. She also has struck and caused to flow some drops of blood from the impure victim. An upright and pious mind cannot entertain the thought and conceive the resolution of homicide without cursing and deploring those circumstances which place honor and life under the protection of the poniard. Consuela was distressed and cast down, and she dared no longer say that her liberty was worth being bought at the price of blood, even that of a villain. My poor Carl, said she, we have filled the office of executioner tonight. That is horrible. Console yourself with the thought that we neither resolved nor foresaw that to which necessity impelled us. Tell me something of this person who has labored so generously for my deliverance. Then you do not know him? Not at all, Signora. I saw him this evening for the first time, and I do not know his name. But where is he carrying us, Carl? I do not know, Signora. I am forbidden to inquire, and I am even ordered, on the other hand, to tell you that if, during the journey, you should make the least attempt to know where you are or where you are going, it would become necessary to abandon you on the road. It is certain that nothing but good is intended towards you. I have, therefore, resolved for my part to allow myself to be led like a child. Have you seen the face of this person? I had a glimpse of it by the light of a lantern as I was laying you in the boat. It is a beautiful face, Signora. I have never seen one more beautiful. You would say he was a king. Nothing but that, Carl. Is he young? Somewhere about thirty. What language does he speak? The frank bohemian, the true language of a Christian. He has only said five or six words to me, but what pleasure it would have given me to hear them in my own tongue, if it had not been at an ugly moment. Do not kill him. It is useless. Oh, he was mistaken. It was highly necessary, was it not, Signora? What did he say when you had accomplished that terrible deed? I believe, God forgive me, that he did not notice it. He had thrown himself to the bottom of the boat where you were as dead, and in the fear that you might be struck by some blow, 
He made a rampart for you with his body, and when we were in safety on the broad water, he raised you in his arms. He wrapped you in a cloak which he had apparently brought for you, and supported you against his heart as a mother holds her child. Oh, he seems to cherish you greatly, Signora. It is impossible that you should not know him. Perhaps I do know him, but since I have not been able to see his face, it is very strange that he should conceal himself from you. However, nothing would be astonishing on the part of those people. What people? Tell me. Those who are called the Chevaliers, the Black Masks, the Invisibles. I am no better informed than you are about them, Signor, though for two months they have had me in leading strings and have been bringing me step by step to succor and to save you. The deadened sound of horses galloping was heard upon the grass. In two minutes the team was renewed, as well as the postillion, who did not wear the royal livery, and who exchanged some rapid words apart with the unknown. The latter came and presented his hand to Consuelo, who re-entered the carriage with him. He seated himself as far from her as possible, and did not break the silence of the night except to sound two o'clock upon his watch. The day was still far from appearing, although the cry of the quail could be heard in the thickets and the distant barking of the farm dogs. The night was magnificent. The constellation of the great bear was enlarged as it turned over in the horizon. The rolling of the carriage smothered the harmonious sounds of the country, and they turned their backs upon the great boreal stars. Consuelo understood that she was traveling towards the south, Carl, upon the box of the carriage, endeavored to drive away the specter of Mayer, which he believed he saw hovering in all the openings of the forest, at the foot of the crosses, or under the tall firs of the wood. He therefore did not once think of noticing towards what regions his good or his evil star was directing him. End of chapter 20